1: Hello, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. Recent incidents involving the deaths of innocent black men at the hands of police, along with other current events, have us all wondering about the current state of our criminal justice system. These incidents raise important questions about fairness and bias, and they force us to take a hard look at critical flaws in our system for delivering justice. Today, we have a chance to address these questions with Adam Benferrato, an associate professor of law at Drexel University and author of the new book, Unfair, The New Science of Criminal Injustice, published by Penguin Random House in 2016. Adam Benferrato has published numerous scholarly articles and his op-eds and essays have appeared in the Washington Post, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and Legal Times. I'm very glad to have him on the show. Welcome, Adam. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So Adam, what inspired you to write this book? So I, I think
0: the seeds of this book really started for me um, in the, the first few days of law school. I I went to law school with um, sort of a very set idea of, of what um, becoming a lawyer would be like. And it was, of course, shaped by all of the television shows and movies that we've all seen. And, and I sort of thought... That what I would do is I'd come in and I'd, I'd memorize all the the rules, um, much like a medical student, you know, memorizing all the bones of the body, um, and then I'd go out and I'd um, fight against uh, corrupt corporations and um, uh, on behalf of um, the, the voiceless um, and the innocent, and um, and I think very early on I started to see um, cracks in that vision of, of justice. Um, and it started to occur to me that, um, what was moving the law, um, or outcomes wasn't actually, um, the law in the books at all. Um, it, it had to do with individual personalities and, um, biases. And, uh, and I started to feel very disillusioned, I think about that. I felt like, Hey, why are we studying, you know, all of these, uh, case holdings, um, when it's really actually the 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 backgrounds and experiences of the judges deciding the cases, which seem to be more important. Um, And I had actually, I was thinking about the other day, one of the real formative moments for me in law school is I went, went to the office hours of this very, very famous um, professor, constitutional law professor. And, um, I sat down and and I sort of said to him, you know, you know, you are this wonderful teacher and I'm really enjoying the class and I think you do a great job of trying to show the consistencies in the doctrine and how this case decided in 1850 um, actually relates directly and is consistent with this case from 1914. Um, And I said, but my impression is that uh, these cases actually aren't consistent at all. Um, They reflect changing people changing um, a set of judges on the bench, um, changing social and cultural influences. And I said, so why, you know, why don't we study those things? Why don't we study human psychology um, uh, in a constitutional law class? Um, And he said, well, you know, that's that's really interesting, uh, but that's not my thing. (laughs) And it was that moment that I thought, well, maybe that could be my thing. Maybe, you know, I should become a law professor. Maybe I should start doing, um, running uh, studies looking at how real humans behave, real judges, real jurors, um, as, as opposed to just sort of assuming these uh, characters, which has been, you know, the, the approach, I think, in law for a very long time, as we sort of assume these things about how witnesses behave or ought to behave, um, as opposed to actually looking at how does our memory actually function? Uh, What's the research, what does it say?
1: Aside from this professor, were there other people who supported you, or did you have other people react in different ways once you started taking this on? Well, I think,
0: uh, you know, for me um, at Harvard, the the biggest influence um, was a wonderful professor named um, John Hansen, who runs the project on law and mind sciences um, there. And, and I really connected with him, um, very early on. And, um, you know, I think he, he was, and still is, you know, one of kind of the dissenting voices on the faculty. He started out really as a, a a legal economist. Um, and, you know, for those listeners who know anything about, um, law schools, um, the economic analysis of law has really been the dominant approach to understanding legal problems for the last, uh, three or four decades. Um, and that approach really suggests that humans are rational actors. And so you assume rational rationality, and then you go about, um, creating these models, whether it's in contract law or criminal law or whatnot. Um, and, and John, I think like me had, um, become very skeptical of that model and, and had, Um, really desire to build a more realistic model of the human being. And so I think our interests really just align so well. So I started working with him, um, uh, writing papers, and, um, you know, he continues to be a really um, uh, great friend um, and and still, you know, even though I've been a professor now nine years, still, you know, a real um, mentor um, uh, for me. Um, and so I think you know if I hadn't found him, would I have had the confidence to kind of uh, pursue uh, these these strands? I don't I don't think so. You know I think I would have kept that doubt, um, but I wouldn't have had the the same outlet.
1: You know, and I think it's important to emphasize that that seems to be one of the underlying or running themes of the book that this system which we think runs uh, on the rationality of our <laughs> of of us as humans um, actually is, is moved along and rests on, on a lot of biases and that we, those of, those of us or people who move through the system or participate in the system are actually making choices every day that are informed as much if not more by their own unconscious biases as by their reason.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, I think that 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 starts I mean, if any of any listeners who ever been called to jury duty, you know, I, I was called I I live in Philadelphia, I was called down um, uh, while I was writing the book, and I went in and, um, you know, as a law professor, law professors very rarely make it onto juries, um, for a variety of reasons. The, The foremost among them is that I think no um, prosecutors or defense attorneys want to feel like they're back in the law school classroom, having a mm. law professor listening to every one of their uh, uh, arguments. So um, I kind of knew that I was going to be um, culled from the jury. Um, but I was really interested in the process. And you know, one of the things that happens um, at the very beginning um, in the voir dire process is that everyone sort of fills out a questionnaire. And it asks questions like, you know, do you, is there any reason why – you might believe a police officer more or less, um, and so we all filled out this this questionnaire, and then the judge looked at the answers. and Some people had said yes on questions like that, and so the judge then asked each person, um, you know, uh, who had answered yes on a question like that, um, and said something to the effect of, "Well, you know." Uh, let me explain to you all what objectivity means, so we all have you know uh, certain opinions or beliefs about things, but when you step into the courtroom you 've got to turn off that switch so if you 're biased against police officers, you just flip that switch off and if you're you know if you have some sort of um, uh bad feelings about black people, well, you turn that switch off um, and he asked all the jurors who who'd, who'd uh, said yes or checked yes. Um, on the questionnaire, you know, are you able to do that? And of course, everyone in this social pressure situation said, oh, yes, judge, definitely. I'll I'll flip that switch off. Um, And that's, you know, what the latest evidence from psychology suggests is that's absurd. Um, You know, we're all influenced by uh, many biases, and it's not a simple matter of consciously deciding not to be biased. Um, And so, you know, if you look at uh, uh, the research, for example, on um, implicit racial bias, we all think um, and have been taught that, you know, being racially biased is a choice that people make. You're either a bigot, you have, you know, your KKK uh, bumper sticker, um, or you decide that you're going to be egalitarian, treat everyone Uh, the same way well that's just not how uh real racial bias works it's true there are some explicitly biased people out there but most of us are walking around the world feeling completely egalitarian while being influenced by damaging implicit stereotypes that come from uh the books we read the television shows we watch um And some of those stereotypes, um, uh, you know, have have been, you know, I have a two year old daughter. She's already being exposed to these associations between the concepts of blackness and crime and violence. It's not surprising that that can influence a police officer deciding whether to draw his gun, going running after a suspect, deciding how dangerous this feels? Well, what does that person rely on? Well, they d- rely on these automatic, unconscious stereotypes. That juror deciding um, uh, how significant a sentence to assign someone, well, they're taking cues off of the color, the person's uh, uh, skin color. Um, and in other research shows, it's not just whether you're black or white. It can be how black you are. So in one very famous set of research studies, Um, uh, scientists looked at, um, uh, death penalty cases and, and what they found was, um, the people who were most likely to get the death penalty, it wasn't just whether you're black or white. It was how stereotypically African American your features were. So people with the widest noses, the darkest skin, the thickest lips, those were the people who were far more likely even than their less stereotypically african-american looking uh, peers to receive the death penalty
1: wow but then let me ask you i mean we've been aware for a long time that we hold some of our our biases and our opinions at an unconscious level i mean freud has been making us aware of this since over 100 years ago so why do you think it is that we have we're so late that we've been so delayed in, in implementing this knowledge why are we still working with this outdated system that still assumes we can consciously turn off our biases um i mean
0: i think it's a it's 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 also explained by human psychology um i mean i think uh that vision of the human being as guided uh, by unconscious forces beyond our control um is not a very uh satisfying one for most people i mean we want to believe that we are active choosers um that we have you know, our our hands tightly held to the reins of our destiny. I think that it's disturbing to think that we um, might be uh, swayed by uh, uh, forces outside of our control. I don't think that's a very satisfying um, vision. I think it's a threat. Uh, uh, It's threatening to think that we might feel um, unbiased and yet act in a biased manner. And so I think that has a lot to do with the resistance of our system to acknowledging that. Um, and I think the other part of it is we, you know, we have this illusion that what we feel, um, is what is true. Um, and I think that we, when we feel unbiased, I mean, I can tell you, I feel unbiased in everything that I do. And yet, you know, um, uh, I have taken implicit association tests, Which show, you know, I am slower, um, you know, uh, pairing sort of positive words with um, obese body types than I am with pairing positive words and uh, skinny uh, people. Now, I am married to uh, a clinical psychologist who specializes in obesity. I mean, I, I have written. Um, you know, a a 150 page article on uh, the obesity epidemic. I care very much about these things. I work to treat everyone the same. And yet I watch the same television shows that, that everyone else does, which where it's still okay to laugh at uh, fat people, to find them disgusting. Um, And I've been shaped by that. And and it's upsetting to confront that fact um, that we're not the people that, that we believe we are and that we want to be.
1: So, I want to bring our attention to a specific situation because I think, I think it could be said that we're dealing with an em- epidemic now involving the deaths of several innocent black victims at the hands of police officers and then the subsequent failure, I think, of our justice system to hold anyone accountable. Now, before we get into that, you make an important point in your book that I think needs to be underlined which is that when bad things happen in the justice system, when unfairness happens in the justice system, it's not largely because the players involved are bad or stupid people. It it seems like you're arguing that what really explains these horrible occurrences is the operation of very subtle psychological processes that no one notices or that very few people notice and yet greatly Sway the course of a case. So, with something like this epidemic that we're dealing with, and which has so many people angry and hurt and scared, what do you think is going on? So, so first of all, um, you know, I think that
0: the the disparate impact that we see here on people of color um, uh, in terms of policing is absolutely undeniable. I mean, I think that that is true. Um, and so we have to then ask the question of why, and some people aren't even there. Some people still think, oh no, it's, it's not true. Uh, people of color, um, uh, commit more crimes and that's, the, that explains, I have looked at the research. I, I think that that is, um, uh, uh, not the case. I think that it is clear to me that, uh, people of co- color, um, are treated differently, um, uh, than people like me, um, uh, white guys. And, um, and so the question then is why? Now, I think that the story that we're hearing from the mainstream media on both the left and the right um, uh, is wrong. Um, and I think that the, the true story uh, is not that we have um, a, a lot of bad apples on our police forces. There are still some. Right. There are still incidents. And we, and we see these um, in which there are um, true bigoted racists um, uh, in uh, eh, on police forces. But I think the vast majority of incidents where we see uh, people of color being shot by police officers, um, uh, being stopped disproportionately, is not the result of uh, police officers getting into their cars and thinking, I'm going to go pick on black people today. I'm going to go injure black people today. Um, I think, you know, in writing this book, um, you know, I went on ride alongs with police officers. I know a lot of police officers. Um, I think the vast majority of people who are officers um, have decided to become cops because they actually want to give back to their community. They want to protect their community. Um, And that means everyone in their community. Um, And Uh, And yet, like I was just talking about, I think we're all influenced by um, uh, uh, damaging stereotypes, implicit associations, which cause us to make decisions differently based on how the people we encounter look. Um, And so I think, you know, there's research on shooter bias, for example, which shows that, you know, in, in laboratory settings, um, people are more likely to make mistakes um, seeing guns in the hands of uh, when it's actually a cell phone or a wallet, when the person is black, seeing that as a gun, um, more likely um, to actually pull the trigger in such cases and make mistakes in that way. Um, and so I think that has a lot to do with with the incidents that we've been seeing, and also though explains why um, so few people have brought, been brought to justice. I mean, the the answer I think that's being portrayed in the mainstream me- media is, um, you know, these grand juries are filled with racists, or um, the prosecutors are really bad at their jobs; they're not trying to actually prosecute these cops. I don't think that's the case at all. I think the answer is a lot of the reason that we see these incidents is it's implicit mechanism. It's not someone consciously going out to shoot someone or to kill someone. And so that means that you can't prove your case um, because it's not the explicit bigot. Um, And I think that the remedy then is radically different, right? The, The remedy is not simply let's sort through and, and take, you know, keep the good cops and get rid of the bad cops um, that's not going to work. Right. Um, if we want to cut down on police shootings of minorities, um, if we want to uh, cut down on the day to day harassment, which hasn't gotten enough attention. Right. It's the day to day traffic stops. It's just the way a cop walks up to you on the street. If we want to change that as a country, I think we desperately need to, um, we need a different approach. And I think that different approach um, has to do, first of all, with training police officers about how they may be influenced uh, by biases beyond their conscious awareness. I think it's about thinking about particular interventions Uh, that can make a difference in terms of uh, preventing shooting. So one of those, uh, uh, which I think is critically important, is really emphasizing the cops. And some police departments already put a big, uh, big emphasis on this, Uh, but only going to your gun as a last, last resort. Don't pull the gun out until you absolutely have to. I think little changes like that, uh, you don't actually always have to get rid of the bias. It's how do you um, uh, intervene in the uh, when the bias is actually manifest as behavior, and if you can teach officers not to talk their way down, to not pull out the gun, right, the chances of that gun going off in a biased manner is is largely eliminated.
1: But it's it's interesting because you cited just now a study showing that there's a bias that influences cops' determination about whether another person is holding a gun or holding something else, and that has been a detail that's been at the center of many of these cases, where the cop in question has has asserted that his life was in danger, and other evidence has disputed that. So how, how do we get inside the minds of these police officers and help them clear this bias which might tilt them in in the direction of thinking that they're in danger and that someone's actually about to pull Uh, a, a gun on them when they're not.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the, the really neat thing is that um, this research on implicit <clears throat> bias has been going on, you know, for, for a couple of decades now. And and we're now at the point that we're really looking at um, de-biasing techniques. Um, and the work here is really, um, I think, exciting and expanding. Um, and some of that work is focused on, you know, how do we get at the underlying biases um, in the long term or even in the short term? In the short term, it's very interesting. One of the things that seems the most effective is actually um, exposing people to – really positive African-American, um, icon type people. Um, and sort of, uh, conversely, um, you know, negative, uh, images or depictions of white people, um, you know, mass murders, kind of things like that. If you disrupt the stereotype in that way, um, that leads people to be less biased in their behavior in the laboratory. Um, now, I think, you know, to really get at this problem, if we want to get rid of the bias, um, I think it requires a commitment um, at a societal level um, to the stereotypes and depictions of African-Americans that we're exposed to. Um, I think it, it, it means looking at you know how black people are depicted in our movies. And obviously this has been an issue that's come up a lot with the, the last Oscars, right? The whitewashing of the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Well, we need to see how are black characters depicted? Are they depicted as frightening, angry, scary? Um, well, if you look, a lot of them are. Negative attention um, uh, in a lot of our shows. Um, people of color are depicted in certain ways that end up uh, influencing that cop on the street. And so if we really want to get serious about this, we've got to look at, you know, the stuff that, that our children are seeing on the television, starting, uh, starting very early on and that we're all exposed to. Um, that's the only way to get, I think deeply at the bias to eliminate the bias. Um, And I might point out that that's going to have, you know, if we commit to that, that's going to have implications well beyond the criminal justice system. You know, there's there's other research that shows that doctors, right, um, prescribe different pain medications, um, uh, decide on different intervention techniques um, based on the color of people's skin beyond their awareness. Right. So the doctors don't even know they're doing it, but they treat black patients and white patients Differently, And not just differently, they treat the black patients worse. They give um, worse interventions um, uh, uh, for their black patients. And so if we change the stereotypes, we can change that um, as well. So I think that's how you get out, get away from the biases. Now, if you're just focused on the behavior, again, I think it's, you know, it, it's thinking about um, what are the circumstances, what's the training that we give uh, to cops? How do we avoid these problems in the first place? So I, I, actually, i actually give you a, a real world example that's actually not in the book. Um, I had a chapter, which I was talking specifically about uh, police officers and police officers working with um, partners or not with partners. And uh, one of the, I did ride-alongs in, in New York and in Philadelphia. And on one of these ride-alongs, I was uh, out with this guy named Sergeant Patino um, in a not very nice neighborhood of Philadelphia. Philadelphia has some beautiful, wonderful, safe neighborhoods, and some uh, neighborhoods which are still um, not so safe and wonderful. And we were in one of those neighborhoods. And I was talking to Sergeant Patino, and he was telling me about an incident he'd recently had uh, with one of his uh, uh, new new recruits. And this person, you know, was just out of the academy, and um, he gets a call. That is, Sergeant Patino gets a call um, from this uh, uh, new recruit, and he has a bad incident. And what had happened? Well, Sergeant Patino drives up. There's a big conflict. Um, This officer had been driving through the neighborhood and had seen um, some guys, uh, old-timers, on the corner drinking what appeared to be alcohol out of a paper bag. So this officer gets out of his um, uh, car just as he's been taught in the academy. If you see um, someone committing offense, you immediately go and intervene, determine the situation. So he runs up, says, what's in that uh, 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 cup? He smells it and he pours it out, splashes onto the guy's shoes. um, And suddenly there's this big conflict. Um, there's pushing, there's yelling. Um, and so Sergeant Patino walks into this, and now he's in this terrible situation because these old timers, right, don't get into any trouble. They sit like many people sit drinking alcohol. A lot of people sit in their houses. These guys are sitting outside because you know their house isn't so nice. They're sitting out socializing. These guys don't cause trouble in the neighborhood. In fact, when the police, when there's a serious problem, a shooting, these are the guys who actually help the police officer say, Oh, this is this gang having beef with this gang. Um, but the training of this young recruit is anytime you see a violation, you need to go up, intervene. You know, it's the law versus the public. And that caused this huge problem where, you know, Sergeant Patino had to decide, I, well, I can't just let my recruit hang out to dry, and yet I don't want to, you know, uh, uh, really anger these gentlemen who help me out when there's a serious crime. And I think, you know, to, to get rid of that problem, right, um, it starts with the training, right? So, like, that is the exact situation where. In, on a worse day, that young recruit might have eventually pulled out his gun. And because these guys were black, that's where that implicit racial bias might actually manifest itself. That's where we're seeing these type of incidents. Um, uh, and so the question is, well, how do you intervene before any of that ever happens? Well, you need to train your recruits to focus on community policing, right? That your job is not to go around and arrest people and find violations. It's to make people feel safe, actually, right? And so how do you deal with some people, you know, drinking alcohol on a corner? Well, in your discretion. Maybe that's not something that you police so much. Or maybe you say, hey, guys, there are, you know, kids around. Do you guys mind, you know, drinking in the house? Um, Fine to hang out here, but, you know, we just, you know, we want to make a safe space for everyone. How do you do those? How do you learn the names? You know, maybe that's the first step is how about you learn the names of everyone in the community? So when you're walking around, um, you don't see that as another dangerous black guy. You see that as Tom, a friend, someone you know, you know, works at the post office. Um, I think it's little interventions like that, a changed frame, which can avoid the shootings that occur later.
1: Sure. Adam, I'm pausing real quick because I need to go turn off my ringer. I'm in my office, so I'll <laughs> Sounds good. I'm making a note of the time. I'll be right back. Let me okay. step away for a second. Okay, sorry. Let's resume. No problem. So one of the things that I find compelling about your book is that you really move us through the entire criminal justice system from beginning to end, from the moment that a crime happens through the trial to punishment. So I want to move along that process and talk about a different facet of the criminal justice system, particularly what happens at the police station, because you talk in your book about false confessions and explain how they happen. First of all, how big of a problem is false confessions and how and why do they happen?
0: So I I think they're a very serious problem. So so for a very long time. Um, we assumed that it was impossible for someone to falsely confess to a serious crime. So I think, you know, a lot of people assumed, well, yeah, sure, someone might confess to a really low-level misdemeanor shoplifting or something. Um, But no one would ever confess to, say, murdering and raping a 12-year-old girl. That that just is impossible. Why? There's no incentive to do that. Um, Certainly no one would do it after we got rid of the third degree. You know, in the early 20th century, you know, people at certain police departments Used to, you know, uh, be, you know, cops would beat someone up um, and get a confession that way. Uh, But we've really largely gotten rid of that. And the notion that someone still might confess um, seems really, really unlikely to to most of us still. Um, And with the the advent of sort of DNA testing, we've realized that actually it's it's not uh, a rarity. In fact, it, it has uh, happened in a significant number of very serious cases. And what we know is if it's happening in very s- serious cases, murders or rapes, it's almost certainly happening in lower level cases where the consequences um, are less. Um, and so researchers have begun to look at um, how it can happen. Um, and their conclusion, um, suggests that, that the culprit is the most widely used interrogation technique, um, in the United States, the, the read approach, um, and how the read approach works is, is, a inter- interrogator, um, brings in the suspect, you know, sits down, um, in the windowless room, um. And the first part of uh, the approach requires the, the interrogator, the detective, um, to just assess whether the person um, is telling the truth or not. Um, and the problem with that is that um, detectives, like all of us, are not very good at um, uh, telling whether someone's lying or telling the truth. So in experiments, um, people tend to focus on things like averted gaze, like whether the person's looking you in the eye as they're talking to you, um, whether they have jittery lips, whether their legs are shaking. Um, And it turns out that these things are really not diagnostic uh, of deceit at all. Um, There are plenty of people who will look you straight in the eye and lie to you, and there's plenty of people like me who, you know, going through airport security, my arms shake for some reason. I don't know why, Um, I just feel nervous when that happens. It doesn't mean that I'm carrying contraband or anything like that um, and so the problem obviously um uh with uh, uh detectives not being very good at this first part of the uh, read technique is that when they determine that someone has uh is being deceitful to them um they then switch to um the uh second Part of the read technique, which is all about getting a, a confession. Um so once someone has determined what well, yes, this person is lying, you know, it's not about, you know, collecting information or going back on that question. No, it's about getting that person to say, Yes, I did it. Um why is the technique designed this way? Well, because that's the best way to get a conviction later on, once you have a confession, that means that almost definitely you're going to be able to convince a jury that this person did it. After all, they're saying in their own words, I'm the guy. Um, and the way the second part of the read technique works is it's, it's akin to the, the classic good cop, bad cop, what's referred to as maximization um, and minimization. Um, and this is problematic um, because it's it, it's a highly coercive, psychologically coercive um, environment. Um, and we know that particular people, young people, people with a history of mental illness, um, people with low IQs are particularly vulnerable in these situations. And. A lot of times, an innocent person may think to themselves, "Okay, I'm experiencing this acute distress. This person is, you know, um, cajoling me, threatening me. Uh, I'm frightened. I've been in this room for five hours. Um, maybe I should just say that I did it. What are the consequences of saying that I did it? Well, I can get out of this room. Maybe I can even go home. Um, uh, and what are the? What's the downside? Well, um, you know, they're." The, these are the police. They're going to keep checking out uh, leads. They're going to talk to other witnesses. And really quickly, they're going to figure out it wasn't me. The problem with that is once you confess, the police stop looking for anyone else. All those other leads, they, they dry up. They don't, look, they don't go down those alleys because they don't need to. They already have you. And further, you know, exacerbating the problem is all of that shaky evidence that was against you before, right, the shaky hair sample or the bite mark evidence, suddenly that starts to look really, really strong. Um, and so that's why um, uh, false confessions are so dangerous.
1: But I want to go back to the that moment when the person who's being interrogated seems to decide, you know, maybe it would just make sense for me to confess because after all, they'll later realize that they were wrong. I mean, I think that that is the moment that so many people who haven't been through this cannot wrap their minds around because in that moment... The person is deciding to confess to something under the fallacy that later it'll be cleared up. And it, again, to those of us who have not been through it, it sounds kind of crazy. Can you help us understand why in that particular moment in under those circumstances, what is going on in the psychology of that person that makes him or her decide that that is the best thing to do?
0: I think it has to do a lot with um, this illusion of transparency that we all have. We, we all think, and, and, and some of, I, I think uh, listeners hopefully can relate to this somewhat, we all have this illusion that what we know about the world and about ourselves is far more clear to other people than it actually is, right? So if you believe you're innocent uh, and you know you're innocent in your heart, you think it's going to be and it is far clearer to other people that you're innocent um and so the danger of confessing seems really small to you to a lot of people in those kind of situations because they think look i know i'm innocent and you know other people will know i'm innocent too and and the police will do their job i mean in fact it's the faith in the system not a distrust of the system it's a faith in the system um uh, which can lead people uh, down this road. Now, another thing that we know is um, innocent people actually, I think are less likely uh, to actually invoke their right to counsel. So these people are alone. Why are they alone? Well, they, they're innocent. Why do I need a lawyer? I know I'm innocent, so I'm not going to bring in a lawyer in this situation. Um, and, um, you know, listeners who, who oh, you know, followed or watched the show, Um, making a murderer, um, you know, will remember this, you know, 17 year old Brandon Dassey, um, who is interrogating just this manner. And I think, you know, he decides to confess. um, uh, And obviously his case is ongoing. But my reading of that case is he decides to confess because he genuinely thinks that if he confesses, he's going to get to go home or back to school, um, he thinks that this is like I just need to tell them what they need to say, what they want to hear, and then i 'll be allowed to go back and they 'll continue working this um and, and that 's why
1: it 'll all be cleared up later i guess is, is it, the... well
0: it, exactly exactly and, and and uh unfortunately, once you confess um it 's really it 's really over and and I mentioned before but it 's worth emphasizing you know we think about you know forensic analysis as really uh, cut and dry objective, um, you know, matching up a fingerprint or, uh, a, a hair sample or bite mark, even DNA. Um, and what we know is actually all of those things are subject to confirmation bias. So if, uh, a forensic examiner, um, already knows that someone confesses that this sample come, has come from someone who has confessed, um, laboratory studies suggest that they're far more likely to find a match, whether that's with a fingerprint or with DNA. Um, And that should really frighten us because the implications of that false confession um, are much broader. It uh, infects other evidence beyond the confession
1: itself. So so I want to move now into the courtroom because you spent a lot of time there and, and move through each of the players involved and make us aware that there is bias in every one of those players. Now, just last week, we learned that Brock Turner, the white young man from Stanford University who was convicted of rape, is getting released after serving only three months in prison. And of course, victims advocate groups are largely um, upset and they're already responding in protest. So where do we see bias in the courtroom?
0: So we see bias in a, in a whole range of areas. I mean, I think most profoundly for um, jurors and judges, um is that, you know, none of us can escape um, who we are. So, you know, very famously, Chief Justice Roberts, during his confirmation hearing, you know, suggested that, you know, there are uh, two kinds of judges, essentially, there are activist, ideological judges who just are forwarding their own agendas. Um, And then there are these umpire judges out there. And these are just The the good judges who have decided, you know, to call balls and strikes, to just look, apply the law objectively to the evidence, to look at things through neutral lenses. Um, And that's really powerful for a lot of Americans. I think a lot of Americans still think that that's possible. Um, What the evidence from uh, psychology uh, Suggests is that that none of us are able to actually do that, um, including judges. So it really matters um, whether you know a a judge is white or black. It really matters um, where a judge has gone to school. It really matters where a judge is living. Um, whether a judge grew up rich or poor um, uh, you know, whether a judge is gay or straight, um, all of those things, um, uh, influence how, um, a judge makes determinations. We all see the world through tinted lenses, which have been tinted by our backgrounds and experiences and our identities. Um, and so I, I mean, I think that that is a real reason why diversity on our courts is so important. Um, Because if you look at the Supreme Court, um, uh, you know, for 180 years, I mean, it was it was basically just white guys. Just, I mean, for most of history, Um, it's only recently that you know we finally have uh, had you know African Americans join the court, women join the court, um, uh, Hispanics join the court. I I think that you know it has been um, uh, a very long history. If you look at Anglo American history, um, a much longer time in which the law was solely shaped by the same people. And inevitably, when the same people are in charge, it's going to favor their perspectives. Um, It's going to favor outcomes uh, for them and for that group. Um, And so I think that's probably the biggest thing that's influencing our legal system is judges who genuinely want to do the right thing, who genuinely want to be neutral and objective and work hard. To look at things in in as neutral a manner as possible, but who cannot escape their years of education and interactions um, in society, can't escape um, who they are. And the very, very funny thing is um, Judge Sotomayor, you know, during her confirmation hearings, the big thing that caused the big uproar is she had said uh, essentially that, you know, as a Latina that her identity um was very important to how she uh looked at cases. Um and that's the truth. Of course that's the truth. Um and yet she had to back away from that, uh say that that's not really what she meant and say no, I'm going to be an umpire judge. And I think that's ridiculous. I think that we need to be honest um about the fact that we all bring different things to um the table and that 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 can be a source of strength if we ensure um uh, that everyone gets a seat at the table.
1: But I wonder if you have an example to illustrate exactly how it is, for instance, that being Hispanic instead of uh, uh, Anglo-American or being gay instead of straight would influence the way that one adjudicates a case.
0: So in the book, I, I talk about um, uh, an experiment that was done um, looking at this this uh, thing, this Supreme Court case um, uh, of a police chase um, that happened down in. Georgia a few years ago. Basically, what had happened was um, a young man um, had, you know, I think he was going something like 73 and a 55 um, late at night in a suburb of Atlanta. Um, Cops pull out behind him. He decides rather than pulling over to hit the gas. Six minutes later, um, the police have get permission to pit his vehicle, um, come up, knock the back bumper. You're only supposed to do pitting techniques when it's safe to do so. The cops do it on a you know, st- uh, straightaway. The, the vehicles are traveling very high speeds. There's a ravine on the side. So Victor Harris's car flips over. He's paralyzed from the waist down. He sues um, the police um, uh, under the notion that in the same way you can't shoot a shoplifter in the back. You can't use a potentially lethal pitting technique on someone who's just been speeding. Um, And so – In the lower court, Victor Harris wins against the police officer, that the police officer's behavior was unreasonable. But when it gets to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court sees things differently. And the reason they see things differently is that they watch the video, the squad car video of what actually happened. And they say no reasonable juror could possibly watch this uh, video and possibly see um, this accident as anything but Victor Harris's fault, not the cop's fault. And so these uh, creative law professor researchers decide, well, what we're going to do is we're going to show that video to a broad cross-section of Americans and see whether they all see things exactly like the Supreme Court. So when they did that, what did they find? Well, they found that discrete subgroups of citizens saw very different facts. So liberal, younger women um, of color from, say, northeast states tended to see things much more in line with Victor Harris's account, that actually it was the cops chasing him, um, causing who really presented the the bigger danger to the public and ultimately caused this harm. Um, Older, white, wealthy men from uh, Western states tended to side with uh, Justice Scalia's majority um, opinion. And so, again, that doesn't mean that anyone's wrong right there is no objective take on the facts there are different visions of the facts and anyone who is a sports fan knows this to be true right so i'm a you know i'm a big soccer fan i watch Uh, I support Liverpool, our arch-rivals, Manchester United. I have sat in the same room with a Manchester United fan, um, uh, a fellow professor in fact, and we have argued vociferously about different calls. And that's not because one of us is biased in the moment. It's that we watch a foul or we watch a penalty or whatever it is, and we see different things. Um, and so I think that this was a case, in this case of Scott versus Harris, where you know the the it wasn't that the Supreme Court got it right and everyone else, the lower court got it wrong. It's that the Supreme Court, because of their backgrounds and experiences, saw a different set of facts than the lower court, and then and different than certain subgroups of
1: citizens. But isn't it the job of the criminal justice system to sort through and ascertain what? really happened? Or, or is that a mistaken view of what the criminal justice system is supposed to do?
0: Well, I think it's a different thing to say, you know, what actually happened um, versus who is responsible or what caused that. And I think it's important to, to try to reach consensus on certain things like that, but to realize that oftentimes, right, there is no single way to see that i mean the world is a complex place why was victor harris paralyzed who caused that well it's not a simple thing right it probably was the actions both of victor harris 19 years old uh, was scared um uh but it was probably also the the actions of the officers as well and so the fact that one person says well it was the officers and another person says well no it was uh, uh victor harris um, Neither of them is completely right and neither of them is completely wrong. And so the search for, um, I think, this moral clarity that we all yearn for um, probably is going to be elusive um, as we um, uh, embrace the psychological evidence more. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no solution um, or no correct remedy um, in a situation like this, but it means that it's going to be a lot more complex to sort out.
1: I, I want to start talking about the solutions. And before doing that, though, just sort of set up the question with the expectation that many people reading your book, including me, might get through it and feel a bit depressed, you know, and, and feel a bit hopeless about whether we can really fix the system sufficiently. I mean, just to illustrate what makes what made me feel this way, I, re- I remember there, there was a very interesting finding in your book that is so minute, but it really illustrates, illustrates how deep this goes. I think you reported that um, studies show judges are more lenient with sentencing in the morning than in the afternoon.
0: Yeah, so that, that, is, that is one of my favorite studies that I mentioned in the book. So this was looking at um, judges, real judges, um, who sit on parole boards in Israel um, and the decision of whether to grant someone parole. So I teach criminal law. I would have told you before reading this study that the most important factors are you know how bad a crime the person committed and, you know, what they did in prison. Did they reform themselves? Had they been a model prisoner? Um, And it turned out those were not the factors that were most important. The most important thing was simply the time of day um, when you happened to appear before the parole board. Uh, First thing in the morning was the best time. Um, uh, Then that kind of dipped as the the morning progressed. Uh, The worst time was right before the first uh, meal break of the day. After that meal break, jumped back up. Um, and I think what that study really shows is just, um, what we're up against, right? Um, I mean, there is, there are significant biases that we're not aware of at all that I haven't written about that no one's even researched yet. Um, and that's really scary. Um, I though, I mean, my own feeling is, um, it's, it's scary, but the, the, the solutions, that means that, you know, um, there's actually things that we can do. And and the first step is actually um, confronting this and studying this. The only way um, we're going to remedy biases is if we start actually um, carefully cataloging what's going on. The solution is not, you know, to go put our head in the stand and say, you know, actually everything is fine. There are no problems. Um, You know, it doesn't matter what time of day uh, someone becomes before a parole board. That's not the way to approach this. The way to approach this is oh well that's really interesting let's run some more studies and see if this is true um with respect to jury trials um does it matter what time of day they are done let's look at hearings with respect to sentencing let's see if people um uh you know or or with respect to um whether people are um the, the amount of bail that they have to pay let's see if that's affected by the time of day and if it is what can we do to intervene What are the techniques? Is this about, say, the fact that people um, become depleted over the course of the day, that they have more energy, mental energy um, to deviate from the status quo? That is to release people before their sentence is finished um, earlier in the day. If so, what can we do to tweak that? Do we need to um, maybe do parole hearings where we have a whole bunch of people all together? So, in fact, we're looking at people comparatively. So we do 10 people at a time to try to remedy this problem. There are obvious solutions once we acknowledge that there's a problem. If we don't acknowledge that there's a problem, if we hide away from the data, there's nothing that can be done.
1: Earlier this summer, on I think in, on July 20th, you published an article in the Washington Post um, that I wanted to bring into the discussion because you offered a very interesting potential solution to to many of these problems. And and I'm not sure if the spirit of the solution is that we shouldn't rely on humans so much. Um, But you argued for the virtual trial. Can you tell us what this is and what you have in mind?
0: Yeah. So, you know, in the book, I try to focus on both, you know, things that we can do right now to make changes, meaningful changes to avoid um, unfairness in our system. Things like changing our eyewitness identification procedures um, uh, so that we have – less misidentifications. Um, but I'm also looking, you know, 50, 100 years in the future. What are the big changes? What are the big ideas that we can be thinking about to change things? And, and one of those that, that I mentioned in the book and that I uh, talk more about in this Washington Post article um, is the notion that if a lot, if, if our eyes and our other senses often mislead us, we judge uh, people more harshly if they have darker skin, uh, if it's true that we're more likely to believe an attractive witness than an unattractive witness, um, if we're, uh, uh, you know, if, if we're, we give longer sentences to obese people than skinny people, maybe one of the solutions is actually um, to prevent jurors and judges um, from seeing these Interpersonal differences. Um, So I suggest in the the article, what if, in fact, um, in the trial of the future, um, we all are wearing, um, you know, the equivalent of the Oculus Rift um, uh, virtual reality uh, headset. And we're presented with um, a virtual courtroom in which, um, you know, everyone is is sort of represented by a neutral avatar with a neutral voice. Um, wouldn't that allow us to focus on what we're supposed to focus on, which is the law and the facts as presented, as opposed to making judgments um, based on appearances or the fact that a particular attorney is wearing a loud tie and gesturing more. Um, all of these things that we actually don't even know, all these biases that we don't even know about um, yet. And, and one of the advantages I see of, of this system is that it also allows us to better control for um, other biasing. Moments that happen at trial. For example, when uh, evidence that's not supposed to come in um, comes in. The current approach is that you know the judge offers an instruction to the jury. Um, so you just heard, you know, that the defendant um, was previously convicted of X crime. Um, that is not, you know, you're not allowed to know that information uh, based on our rules of evidence, so just forget what you just heard. Well, in research studies, Jurors can't do that. Once you've heard something, you can't let it, you know, you can't unhear it. Um, But if we were doing these things in a virtual environment where we actually pre-recorded these kind of things, we could actually edit those biasing moments um, out. Um, And I think the further advantage to using a virtual trial approach is that it could potentially allow people um, to participate at home. One of the real issues that we have now with respect to the diversity of our jur- juries is that some people can't participate. They have jobs that simply do not allow them to miss five days in a row. Um, they get fired. Um, they would. They would uh, or they have, they're caring for uh, an elderly relative or children. Um, one of the things about moving to a virtual trial is this is something that people could fit in on their own time at home. Um, And I think that would be a way to really bring in uh, that broad cross section of citizens that, that we uh, need for our our system to function as it should.
1: So Adam, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with us, reading to us one of your favorite passages or sections of the book and, and telling us what it means to you.
0: Uh, Sure. So So I'd like to actually just read um, a little bit from the very end of of the book. Um, So, we enjoy magnificent advantages over our forebears in the quest to remedy unfairness. We know much more than they did about human behavior. We possess amazing technologies to track, address, and prevent problems. And we have a greatly enhanced capacity to coordinate actions that affect millions of people. But for it to matter, we must act. The arc of history does not bend toward justice unless we bend it. So the reason that I, I, I chose that um, passage um, is that I think a lot of us uh, believe that, you know, the march of history always brings us closer and closer to perfection. Um, uh, we have this notion that kind of we're at the, the pinnacle of, of civilization and it's only going to get better from here um, and, you know, don't worry, you know, as you read in the newspaper over the last couple of years, all of these incidents of police brutality, or you hear about yet another DNA exoneration, um, that, that it's okay to just kind of sit back. Things will get better. Um, and one of the things I want readers to take away from this book is if you are upset, um, by the injustices, the unfairness that I have sort of mapped in these chapters. Um, You need to do something. You have a responsibility. Do not leave it up to police departments to fix themselves or to judges to um, see the light or um, for crime labs to get better procedures. Um, You have a responsibility to advocate for change, to become involved, um, to go out and, and make your world and our world um, a, a better place. And so, um, you know, I have been trying to do that by um, going out, I've been uh, around the country um, over the last several months talking to groups of judges and prosecutors and defense attorneys and everyday citizens um, to try to change things. Now, not everyone is a law professor, um, uh, but everyone has a voice. Um, and so I, I urge people um, if you care about the state of our criminal justice system, um, to, to be active um, to care to discuss these things with other people um, and and to help us uh, change to the system that, that I think we all deserve
1: are you aware of any interesting and, and uh, meaningful activism already happening on this front things that are already taking place
0: yeah so I mean I think that's one of the most exciting things is, is how receptive a lot of the people that I have talked to um Are I mean I think that judges, defense attorneys in particular, um, are already thinking about these things. Um, I was just up in Boston um, talking to uh, a group of uh, judges, um, and they they are they want the tools, right? And they want to connect with academics who are doing research. They want to collect data, Um, and I think that's really where we're going to see the big changes is when uh, people start to just embrace the evidence based approach to justice right this notion that the way we run our system is the way that we you know we we or the way that we should run our system is the same way that you know we run our medical system which is like running empirical tests collecting data figuring out what works and what doesn't and building best practices like that's the kind of uh, uh way that we can be, uh, gain a more accurate Um, vision of who's guilty, who's innocent, what works in terms of uh, corrections. Um, And so I've been really, really, uh, it's been very heartening interacting with people. Um, I'm really excited actually about what um, uh, groups of police officers um, are doing. I've heard from a couple of Police, new police officer groups um, who uh, have really approached, uh, embraced this empirical approach to policing to figure out, um, well, what are the good ways to interrogate suspects? If it's true that the read technique doesn't work, what techniques work better? And the great thing is that in this day and age, we can see you know what's being done in uh, the United Kingdom or what's being done in Sweden and other countries often are trying things that are not just different but are better, whether that's with respect to um, interrogation techniques, whether that's with eyewitness identification procedures, or whether that's with respect to how they run prisons. Are you hopeful? I am hopeful. I mean, I think it's going to be an uphill battle. I I worry um, uh, because we all have short attention spans, and the media in particular has short attention spans, um, that criminal justice is going to fall off uh, the agenda. I mean, I was really surprised to see it uh, rise to the fore um, that you know presidential candidates had criminal justice platforms. Now, uh, with the rise of Donald Trump, um, a lot of that momentum um, within the Republican Party, um, I think, has been lost on criminal justice. There were there were a lot of um, Republicans who were actually talking about criminal justice reform. Um, that focus, because Donald Trump is is such, I, I will use the term, unique character. Um, he, he the, the focus on issues um, like criminal justice is less, um, but I'm hopeful that uh, this, uh, that we still have this rare moment where people seem to genuinely care. For a long time, people didn't care. I mean, most of my life, people haven't cared very much about the criminal justice system. It's criminals after all, what, you know, if we're treating them a little bit worse, who cares? Um, that's really changed, and so I am absolutely hopeful, um, but I think we have to keep, um, keep attention on the issue and, and keep moving forward.
1: Well, Adam, I'm so glad that you are bringing attention to this issue and that you've written this really, really great book. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, what are you working on now? What's next?
0: So I am, I am planning um, uh, my next book right now. I'm continuing um, – You know, we didn't talk about it too much, but I, I continue to do actually my own empirical research, um, particularly looking at um, intuitions about punishment. So I'm continuing to work with my, my um, colleague, Jeff Goodwin, who's at uh, the University of Pennsylvania, cognitive psychologist there, on running new experiments. So that's going to be stuff that's going to be published in sort of scientific journals. Um, but I'm also planning sort of my next – um, uh, book project, um, and it, it's not it's not ready for prime time. But uh, but hopefully we can have another chat down the road once uh, once I've worked out some of the kinks. But I, but I will tell you it is it is um, similarly ambitious and, and similarly forward forward looking.
1: I'll be looking forward to it. You, you definitely have an open invitation. Um, that sounds like a very exciting project. Again, the book is called Unfair: The New Science of Criminal Injustice published by Penguin Random House in 2016. Adam Benfrado. thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much. You've been listening to New Books in Psychology with Eugenio Duarte. I'd love to know what you think. If you have suggestions for authors you'd like to hear on the show or just want to give me some feedback, Please go to eugenioduartephd.com, that's E-U-G-E-N-I-O-D-U-A-R-T-E-P-H-D.com, click on contact and send me a message. I look forward to hearing from you.